Hello and welcome to the Flathead Beacon Podcast. I'm Andy Viano. This week you'll hear from a pair of people who picked either the absolute best or one of the very worst times to take a once-in-a-lifetime trip and through-hike the Continental Divide Trail this spring and summer. Sarah Williams and Peter Weinberger are the subjects of this week's Flathead Beacon cover story, written by Micah Drew, entitled 3,000 Miles, One Trail, and No One in Sight. And Sarah and Peter joined me in our Kalispell office this week to talk about their journey and what it was like to be walking day after day across the United States while the coronavirus pandemic was unfolding around the country. And after that, stay tuned for the top headlines from the last seven days in Northwest Montana. First, a very quick reminder that this podcast and all the content we produce at the Flathead Beacon is made possible in part by members of the Beacon Editors Club. Members pay as little as $5 per month to help us dig deep into the stories that matter to you and provide all of our content in print and online for free. Plus, members get access to an exclusive website and invitations to member-only events with our newsroom. Learn more or join the club today at beaconeditorsclub.com. Okay, let's turn back to Micah Drew's cover story in this week's Beacon, 3,000 Miles, One Trail, and No One in Sight, and the two subjects of that story, thru-hiker Sarah Williams, who lives in Kalispell, and Peter Weinberger, who's from the Boston area. They didn't start the Continental Divide Trail together, but they did finish that way, and I started off our conversation by asking how and when they came together. I was having some uh, ankle problems early or late in New Mexico, a town called Grants, New Mexico. My ankles were both swollen up and I was having a really hard time putting 80 weight on them. So I took an extra day off in the hotel and my hiking partner moved on without me. And Sarah was staying at the same hotel and that's where we ran into each other. Yep. We met at a Motel 6 when he asked for Epsom salts. <laughs> I had bought some. <laughs> Did you expect at that point that six months, five months later, you'd be finishing the trail at the same time and, and here together now? No, I don't nope. think so. I think I expected to hike with other people. Um, just, I think what I'd known about through hiking is one that there's generally a lot more people doing it and a lot of different groups. And so my thought was to bounce around, maybe hike by myself some, but you know, we hiked together for like 2000 miles at least. So. Yeah. I never expected to hike with one person for that long. I did the Appalachian trail three years ago and I was constantly bouncing around to different groups. So it was definitely a change for me. So why did it happen this time then? I mean, it was a combination of things. The trail was really unique this year and that there just weren't that many people doing it. So it wasn't like we were constantly running into other people to hike with. Sometimes we'd go entire stretches between towns, six or seven days without seeing another hiker. So I think at first it was that. And then later on, we realized that we were really good hiking together, which isn't always the case with two random hikers that meet each other. So I agree. We just ended up being really compatible hiking partners, um, which is just amazing in general that we could, we literally spent 24 hours a day, seven days a week with each other. We maybe hiked 200 miles, not together, but for whatever reason we were able, we had arguments of course, and times we were very frustrated with each other and <laughs> like yelling at, well, I yelled more often on trail. Um, but I think we were also very forgiving and very understanding. We're in a pretty stressful situation. Yeah. 
What, what's the benefit of being out with someone? Because correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I would imagine as someone who has not done through hiking to, to the extent, obviously, that, that you guys have, that part of the appeal is some of the, the solidarity and, and peace and being able to be out there in nature. What's the benefit on the flip side of that, of, of having someone there with you that often? Walking by yourself gets really boring. I don't know how people do it for thousands of miles. Because, uh, you know, it's not always an adventure. Most of the time, it is not an adventure. You are just walking. And on the CDT, you're walking on roads a lot of times or like dirt roads in the middle of nowhere. Um, so it's good to have someone there to talk to, someone to lift you up morale-wise as well. We've talked about how we were able to balance out really well just our bad days and our good days so that it was very rare if it ever happened that both, both of us were having a bad day at the same time. A lot of the experiences out there are more, um, I guess, meaningful if you can share them with another person as opposed to just going through everything yourself. So. That's how it was for me. Which gears just a little bit. I mean, I, I, I know the answer is different. I think for both of you, mm-hmm. why did you decide to take this trip? Why, why walk the, the CDT? Um, so I had a lot more thought and planning, I think, into the trip than Peter did. Uh, back, back like in 2018, uh, I was just walking um, a trail out in Glacier prepping for a a hike in the Bob. And I just thought to myself, man, I love this. I should do a through hike. And from that moment on, it was true. But I had never done one. And the CDT is kind of known as the pinnacle of big through hikes in the States. Um, So I I did a lot of prep as far as um, building skills. I dehydrated most of my food. But the the main reason why I wanted to do it just because I wanted to. Uh, about a month before uh, I started the trail on April 24th, I was staying in Massachusetts, and that's when the coronavirus stuff was getting really bad. And they started shutting things down, and I was going to have to stop going to work, and I decided I wanted to do a hike, but I was kind of on the fence about it. And then uh, as things got worse and worse, my anxiety slowly grew more and more. And then right like a day or two before I left is when the governor of Massachusetts instituted stay-at-home orders. And I just said, I have to get out of here. I can't, I can't do this for five months. So I, I popped on a plane and just did it. What, what did you know about the coronavirus at that point? I mean, did you know it was going to kill people? Did you expect that it was going to keep you locked up at home for months instead of a couple of weeks? Like, what was your understanding of where this country was in the pandemic when you decided to, to pack up and get on a plane? It seemed like things were going to get a lot worse before they got better to me. I didn't think it was going to be over in a couple of weeks. And it had only been a couple of weeks and I was already, my anxiety was really high. Um, yeah, I didn't know exactly what would happen, but I knew that I didn't want to be in the middle of society when it all went down and that the best place I could be was somewhere far away. Was there a concern that, I, I mean, don't let me twist your words, but I mean, in, in the middle of society, when it all went down, was there that level of, I, I guess, what did you expect you'd be coming back to in however long it took after you finished the trail? I didn't know exactly, but a part of me hoped that it would all be over, that this would have just passed and things would be back to normal. Nobody would be wearing masks. Everything would be open and things would just kind of be the way they were. I guess looking back, it was kind of a... <laughs> romanticized idea I had about what things could go back to, but that's kind of what I expected or hoped for anyway. And I just want to butt in here and say that when we started around the time we started the hike, it was still fairly early on in the pandemic and people were talking about like martial law 
breaking out. And um, I know I the one thing in my mind that would stop me from hiking was if they stopped traffic, like travel between borders of states. There was no toilet paper anywhere. And so that's a thing you think about as a hiker, too. Like, am I going to be able to get the food I need or the supplies I need in town? So it was just I, I think it's become much more normalized now. And in certain areas, things have calmed down. But back then, it was pretty new and pretty scary. Yeah. Sarah, since you had done so much planning for this trip, did you have thoughts or I guess how seriously did you consider postponing this or, or we can do it next summer or this is just not the time because who knows what, what the country's like right now? I mean, I was kind of come hell or high water. Um, uh, I was able to take off I, I want my fear was that I wouldn't be able to get the time off work again. I got a sabbatical. And so I just figured the absolute worst thing that could happen is I would have to hang tight down in Austin with that's where I'm from originally and be with my parents um, because I was there the month before I started hiking, prepping, and I would just hike the state of Montana or something like that. That was my absolute worst case scenario. Ne never was it. I'm, I'm not going to be able to do this at all. How much? Well, I think for for maybe for those of us following the news super closely, it's more of this. But I think for most people around right now, they're paying pretty close attention to what's happening, maybe on a daily basis with the coronavirus. How often was it on your mind as you were were on your journey? I think it was um, one of the first things I noticed in the first week or two of hiking is just how much people stop talking about it on trail. I think we, it, we got to talking about it more, but I, I had hiked with a, another group before I met up with Peter and it just wasn't a topic of conversation. It might be like a little bit, Oh, like, were you still working? Things like that. But, um, I don't have data on my phone. So I wasn't, even when we ran into service on trail, I wasn't like looking at news. Um, I don't know of many other hikers we ran into that were it wasn't, it just wasn't a common thing. Was there a temptation and, and maybe for, for you and correct me if I'm wrong, Peter, you've done some other, you said Appalachian Trail and, and some other significant hikes. Was there more of a temptation this time around to stay in touch with the news and, and find out what was going on or, or maybe less so? At first there was early on in New Mexico, it was really on my mind and I was downloading podcasts and catching the news in town as often as I could. He was a very angry person. I was. It was not improving my state of being or my experience on the trail. So finally, I just had to cut it all off. And then I tried to actively avoid it as much as I could after that. Well, that's great. I think that's something maybe we'd all like to do some uh, sometimes. Well, you both have been back now for, what, four days something like back that. Into, into society. How has, uh, how has reintegration been? It's been fairly easy so far because we haven't had to do anything, like haven't had to go back to work. It's really just been relaxing and drinking wine and hanging out and slowly reacclimating into society. Yeah, I'm trying to get back onto like a town shower schedule. I think I went about four <laughs> days without a shower and That's then right. everyone was like, Sarah, you know, you can you can do that if you want. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay. You shower every day now. Wow. Um, yeah. Um, it really hasn't been too bad because uh, like Peter said, we just haven't done anything. It does feel though like our days are full and i think it's because when we were hiking we literally just had one thing to do all day we had one goal one objective it's get from point a to point b and here it's like oh well i need to go to my storage unit and then i need to go to the grocery store and we have a pear tree at my house i'm like i then i need to cut up all these pears so they don't rot 
Um, which doesn't sound like a lot, but I'm like, where am I going to fit it in in my day? Waking up at 10. So. <laughs> do you, do you want to do this again? Whether it's this trail or another one? No. <laughs> no, I do not. <laughs> Does that, are we to infer something about how the experience was for you or? Oh, no, it was a good experience. Um, but the, just the difficulty of prepping, if I were going to do some and, and investing so much time, if I were going to do another through hike, it would be much shorter. And this trail especially is just such a constant grind. You don't, you don't get a day off really. Um, even when you do have a rest day, for the most part, you're doing errands in town. You have to walk to all of them. I think we, we only had, we took two, they're called trail zeros where you're on, you're camping somewhere on trail and you don't hike. So we literally had two days off where we did not do anything and we did not walk anywhere over for me, 147 days. <laughs> so, yeah. What about for you? Is this something you'd, you'd like to do again, a positive experience overall for you? Yeah, I have to. There's a saying in the th uh, through hiker community that you can do either one major trail or three, but you can't do two. And I've done two at this point. So I have to do the triple crown. So that's probably not next year, but at some point I will. How did the CDT compare to the Appalachian trail? It was night and day. Like the Appalachian Trail is a giant party and there's thousands of people everywhere and the terrain is different and there's a lot more support, like you going through towns a lot more. So it was a very different experience. I really enjoyed it, but in a very different way, I'd say. Well, Sarah, Peter, thank you so much for uh, for sharing your story with us. It's a great story in The Beacon this week. If folks have not read it yet, pick up a copy or read it online. Uh, again, both of you, thank you for uh, for talking and for coming by today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thanks again to Sarah and Peter for spending a little time to share their story with us. And please do check out Micah Drew's excellent story. You can read it now at flatheadbeacon.com or by picking up a copy of this week's issue for free throughout Northwest Montana. Now, here are the biggest stories from the last seven days as of 11 p.m. on Tuesday, September 29th. A surge in coronavirus cases following the long Labor Day weekend has continued to grow in the days and weeks since, with Flathead County still in the midst of its most significant COVID-19 outbreak. The City-County Health Department received 94 positive tests on September 25th, the largest single-day total since the start of the pandemic, and one of four straight days with at least 40 new cases discovered here. As of this recording, there are more than 300 coronavirus cases active in Flathead County, and now 17 people hospitalized more than at any point during the outbreak. Cases in the county are pouring in from a number of sources, including schools like Flathead High School, which reported 22 coronavirus positives among students and staff as of September 23rd, the most of any school in the state. Health officials are also monitoring outbreaks at long-term care facilities, including the Montana Veterans Home in Columbia Falls, where nine COVID-19 cases are currently active, although only two of those infected are residents of the facility. Speaking of long-term care facilities, Whitefish Care and Rehabilitation, which has suffered 11 deaths from COVID-19, was given a harsh review by regulators earlier this month who found COVID-positive residents were living in the same rooms as people who had, to that point, tested negative, and that a plan to correct deficiencies first discovered in May was ignored by administrators. 
Regulators found the facility was in, quote, immediate jeopardy, a designation that the violations were serious enough to risk imminent harm to life. The findings were compiled by the Montana Department of Public Health and Human Services and the Federal Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, who conducted a site survey in late August. As of September 28th, nearly every resident and a number of staff members at Whitefish Care and Rehab had already been infected with the coronavirus. Elsewhere, the Blackfeet Nation entered a 14-day lockdown on Sunday to try and stop a recent outbreak of COVID-19 on the reservation that borders Glacier National Park. Law enforcement does have the authority to cite those who violate the order, which came down just days after the reservation communities of Bab and St. Mary entered shutdowns of their own. To support families in need on the Blackfeet Indian Reservation, the Flathead Food Bank delivered thousands of pounds of food late last week, along with diapers, baby formula, and other essentials. The Blackfeet COVID-19 Incident Command reported 191 active cases on the reservation as of Tuesday afternoon. And finally, nurses at Kalispell Regional Healthcare have begun a public awareness campaign as they continue to press forward with the creation of a collective bargaining agreement between the provider and a newly formed nursing union. The unionized nurses are arguing for better compensation, benefits, and higher staffing levels, and have taken their message to the streets with yellow and purple yard signs that have begun popping up around the valley. The two sides were scheduled to meet for a 12th negotiating session on Tuesday, and a KRH official said the public airing of grievances would have, quote, very little influence on those negotiations. That's all for this week. Remember to subscribe to the show by searching for Flathead Beacon wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review if you're enjoying the show. And don't forget, you can read all the latest news from Northwest Montana for free anytime at flatheadbeacon.com. Until next week. Thanks for listening.